and welcome to ESPN's The Far Post podcast. It's a serious pod today, so we'll kick things off with a content warning. Throughout this episode, there will be discussions about and mentions of sexual harassment, bullying, grooming and abuse. If anything we chat about today or anything that has been in the media recently has affected you, there is support available and we'll share that on our socials. We'll have it in the episode description of this pod and we'll go through it again at the end of the pod. So please, if anything is affecting you, please reach out and and access that support that is available. Um, Today, it's me, Marissa Lordanik, Angela Christian Wilkes, Sam Lewis and Anna Harrington taking you through the last couple of weeks of allegations about harassment, abuse and a toxic culture in women's football. We know we've taken a while to address this, so we do want to apologise, but we do want to, we wanted to ensure that we weren't doing a disservice to you guys by not doing this episode properly because it's it's too serious to have done it poorly. We wanted to make sure we discuss these issues with a lot of care and consideration and sensitivity, as well as respect to those who have come forward with allegations and anyone else who may come forward in the future. So it's serious stuff and we wanted to treat it as such. So to recap what's gone down, the original story that was run in the News Limited papers has Lisa Devanna alleging that she was the victim of sexual harassment and we have two separate incidents that she describes. Uh, the first occurred in 2001 when she was 17 as part of the Young Matildas setup, and she alleges that she was pulled down from behind and dry humped by a few of her teammates. Uh, she fought her way off the floor kicking and screaming and these teammates thought it was funny. Uh, there's another incident where Devanna alleges that uh, there was a time she was asked to join two girls in the shower who were rubbing soap on each other, but we're not sure about the specific timings or settings of that allegation as we are the last one. The original story also featured the voice of Riley Dobson, who alleges that she was the target of predatory behaviour. And the the article is more about Devanna's story Um and it seems like she's sharing these incidents publicly after 20 years, which takes a, a hell of a lot of guts. And, you know, she talks about then wanting consequences and accountability and the eradication of these kind of behaviours. And I think we can all safely say we we all want that. That's definitely something everybody wants. So in the weeks since, we've had a whole raft of former players and teammates come out in support of Devanna and her allegations. There have been some other stories about historical abuse and harassment. And naturally, there's been responses from Football Australia, from the current Matildas, as well as the wider football community, which some of which has been abusive itself. So we will address all of it, but we'll start with our reactions to the situation as a whole. So, Anna? Well, I know we're a couple of weeks gone now, but I think the initial reaction I certainly had, and I think a lot of people have, was you just felt sick reading it the experiences Lisa talked about how that made her feel what she went through um it just made you it made you feel ill or it made me feel ill and the fact that she's clearly held it in for 20 odd years like and it's you have to think it would have been burning at her for a long time and she's made the decision to uh come forward and tell her story and um have it be told and yeah, it's it, it's a it's a devastating story, really. You, you've we've heard it in other sports um, around the world. We've seen these moments of reckoning, and they don't get any easier for anyone to to hear about. And yeah, it, as I say, it's it's a 
devastating that Lisa went through these experiences. Um, I think all you can hope for now is that she's got the right people around her, that she's getting lots of support. Um, it would have been a big couple of weeks. We know she's spoken since or not spoken since, gone on the record um, in terms of uh, opinion piece uh, for News Corp. Um, but I hope that she is being looked after in the sense of people with her her well-being first and foremost. She's getting the support she needs and, um, yeah, is, I guess, getting managed through this difficult time. But, yeah, it's a, I think the initial reaction was, yeah, it was just, um, it's devastating. You know, you never want to hear, as I said, you never want to hear these stories. And um, but at the same time, they are important stories. They have it's important for people to come forward, to have their voices said, to feel like they're being heard. Um, and they're also quite important in terms of implementing and I guess being a catalyst for change. And I think that's what we're hoping will come forward from this, as has happened in in other sports. Um, Sam. Yeah, as you said there, Harrow, this story of Devanna's is part of a larger moment, isn't it, that sport more generally is experiencing. It's sort of catching up in a lot of ways to the Me Too movement that has sort of swept across the world over the last few years. We've seen it happen in gymnastics. We're seeing it happening in swimming, hockey, lots of other different sports are looking at themselves and starting to assess the ways in which they have perhaps not allowed or not created environments of safety or comfort for athletes for a long time. And, you know, it's telling that a lot of the sports have arrived at those moments of reckoning only after athletes have spoken to the media because in a lot of cases they feel like the internal processes that were in place for them at the time were not adequate or that they didn't provide them with the kind of remedy that they were seeking and they didn't feel heard, as you said again, Harrow. And so they've gone to the media because that is a lot of the time the only way to get things to change is to to talk about it from the outside and get people to look at them from the outside. And we've seen that happen in football already. We've seen very rapidly Football Australia responded to Devanna's allegations with uh, the Sport Integrity Australia referral. Um, which was something that was apparently already in the works after a, a review in 2019 international teams. But this story, I, I assume, accelerated that process and, and Football Australia spoke publicly about that process. And that's a really important thing because that new independent body is going to remove Football Australia from the equation and in the past, not just Football Australia but all governing bodies in sport have been in a really complicated and problematic situation where they've had to, in some cases, investigate themselves. So obviously there's a huge conflict of interest there. Allegations get buried, they get mishandled, they don't get reported properly. And that's why you see athletes coming to the media because they don't trust the the institutions and the structures that were in place for them. So yeah, I mean, I think the, the the big takeaway or one of the big takeaways from this moment, hopefully, is that we are going to see sports changing and implementing new systems in order to handle these kinds of complaints um, because they're, they're, they're common. You know, we're seeing more and more of them pop up 
um, as more and more athletes who have experienced harassment and abuse and other types of violence are starting to feel solidarity with one another and are starting to understand the power of speaking out and the power of a collective voice. Um, a good example of that is what's happened in the NWSL over in the United States. That collectivity has been really powerful. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think we'll, we'll get into some, um, some more details about everything a little bit later in the episode, but I think one of the biggest lessons that we're all learning and one of the biggest lessons that Football Australia is learning and that football more generally is learning is that it does need to look itself in the mirror and it needs to look at its own failings and the ways in which it can improve structurally going forward. Just to bounce off that, Sam, I think it is so important that they were on the front foot in the sense of announcing an independent investigation. As you say, you you can't be investigating yourself. Um, We've seen, uh, I guess, the success of these independent investigations um, in terms of, say, gymnastics is a good example um, because everything's laid bare, right? You you can't hide away from it. And more importantly, I think if you're an athlete who – um, has an issue with an institution or, a, say, a sports governing body or a team or whatever, you're not going to want to go to them with your story, are you? So it's. I think this is going to be a really important step and I think it was the step that had to be made and we're going to obviously learn a bit more about that down the road. But as you say, Sam, football needs to take a look at itself, but it's so important that there's someone else from the outside taking what you hope is a really deep look as well and that everyone who has an experience, and as you say, Sam, there'll be more people who have had bad experiences feel that they can come forward and be heard and have their concerns acted upon. I wonder in sort of the context of how this process has been set up in sort of that it's been accelerated by um, Lisa Devanna's story, if that is actually going to mean that there's more uptake in the sense that people are, there's a bigger conversation that's happening instead of it just sort of, if none of this had happened and the sort of framework had been set up and it was just there, whether there would be A, the awareness that this story has sort of generated around what this frame, well, what this independent process will do and be also the sort of awareness of maybe people reflecting and thinking on their own experiences in sport. Um, Cause I do, I do wonder, like it's incredibly brave. And as you've both noted, sometimes necessary um, if the structural support or I guess justice isn't there for some people to have to come forward and speak to the media, but um, others might have felt that they just weren't able to do that and in turn haven't been able to have um, things that have happened to them be addressed properly or, or investigated. So so sort of interest, it's feels like it's it's awful that it's this story has sort of been the thing to push it and that these things have happened to Lisa, but good in the sense that it's generated a bigger conversation that a lot of people are now in touch and, and in tune with. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Angela. And it's it's maybe also worth talking about the fact that Lisa's allegations occurred 20 years ago in the early 2000s, and a lot has changed since then. And one of the major things that has changed is the way in which we understand abuse and harassment, the words that we use to describe it, the language we have to understand it. And I think in that respect, as what you said there, Angela, this story of Devanna's the, the the specific um, instances that she talks about 
some people might read those and be like, oh, like I had a moment like that as well. And maybe in their minds, they didn't frame it in the same way, but perhaps by virtue of reading how Devanna feels about it, they would they would double they they would sort of reflect back on what happened to them and and reconsider how they feel about it now, and I think that's a good thing. I think it shows that our our understanding of abuse and harassment is maturing. It's becoming more complex, more nuanced. We have lots of different terms and um, definitions for for certain actions and behaviors now. Um, I think the conversation in the sort of the modern day is also now much more focused on centering the survivor or the person who experiences it and validating their feelings and ensuring that they um, are sort of given the foundation of belief. Now we, we talk about this phrase, believe women. And I think it's important to, to note that um, the, the original, I guess, um, principle behind that in terms of me too uh, Tarana Burke, the founder of Me Too, actually gave an interview on ABC about this recently. It's not a, a blanket belief that everything that every woman or any survivor of violence says is true. It's that you start by taking what they say seriously. It means that you, in the same way that you would you would think about any other kind of assault from any other kind of person or any other kind of complaint from any other kind of person, you believe that what has happened is serious and you encourage them to pursue the appropriate avenues of remedy, reporting, investigations, all that sort of stuff. You don't automatically and immediately dismiss or minimize or belittle or ignore what they're saying. You, you know, you, you believe them and you take it seriously. So I think that's an important distinction to make because a lot of the reaction that I've noticed um, online has, has been a little bit mixed in terms of that. Um, and that that original principle of of the phrase "believe women" as it was intended in the Me Too movement has been a little bit lost. So I think that's sort of important to note as well. But but going back to what I was saying earlier, you know, we do have now this more updated vocabulary to describe abuse and harassment. And I think stories like this, even though it's awful that she felt that she had to go to the media. In you know the silver lining to it is that now people who have perhaps gone through something similar have a new updated vocabulary to describe it. And I think we saw it with uh, the US gymnastics, um, the Dr. Larry Nasser situation where you had athletes like Simone Biles come forward as well, Sam, where it gives the public, even if it's only initially at a surface level, a wider education on these things. You mentioned about understanding uh, what say abuse or assault or whatever means it's it's given people at least that level and I think the other thing it does is it will force or it has forced institutional change in terms of education in terms of frameworks to protect the athlete to protect the individual um, and give and as I mentioned before making sure that these athletes are in a position to know what's okay and what's not and um, knowing, knowing that they do have a recourse to, I guess, take action if they're unhappy with their situation. This, it's important, like an education process, both for the wider public and for athletes and individuals. And um, as much as I think Angela worded it really well, you don't want to hear of these stories happening to people. People coming forward does have that effect in terms of making people reflect. Um, taking these issues, I guess, out into the public where 
people might not necessarily know about it. it it's it is just uh yeah it's an important as we mentioned it's an important story and i think it, like these other stories we've mentioned it it will have an impact in that sense i think just bouncing off what you said there sam as well about sort of how changing like our understanding of these things has shifted over time um i think it's kind of interesting to consider um first of all that so this um in inquiry or investigation will encompass men's football um and second of all but thinking through I guess what sort of behaviors might have been normalized that we're now you know no longer saying that's fine um in a couple of instances in people sort of responding to this story um the word banter has been used which I find really interesting um in in particular I'm thinking of how this was sort of reported by Gary Lyon and and Tim Watson on SEN um and one of them I'm afraid I I cannot tell their voices apart very sorry Gary and Tim but one of them mentioned that in his experiences of football um AFL as a player there had been some things that had happened to him but he sort of just he was like, it, it was what happened to the youngest person on the team. And I found that really interesting because in some contexts, people may view what happened to Devanna as just part of what happens to people in team environments. Um, and that also ties in a lot with sort of discourses of, especially men's sport, boys will be boys and like initiation stuff, all that kind of thing. And so it's a really interesting moment to consider how, those things are handled in all sport, um, whether it's women or men, but especially in how those things have been normalised around sort of discourses of, I guess, masculinity a lot of the time, like I said, like um, what boys do. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that really made <laughs> much sense, but also, yeah, the fact that Football Australia have emphasised that this is going to cover men's football as well is um, really good I think and again means that there will be reflection on perhaps power dynamics that exist in all sorts of sporting environments um, and how they might be questioned and how I guess yeah how we can move forward in a way that centers athletes well-being and welfare. Yeah, exactly, Angela. Like it's it's not just that language has changed over the last 20 years, it's the standards of behavior have changed. It's that culture has changed when it comes to sports teams, particularly sports in the high performance space. And, you know, I, I wrote about this for ABC. The, the concept of culture is, I think, one of the, the big talking points to come out of this whole story. Um, it took me a while to be able to untangle the various threads of this as it was happening. But I, I, I found uh, the, the best way for me to try and understand why there were so many contradictory experiences of this one thing, this one thing called women's football culture. I I didn't understand why that was happening. And the more that I thought about it, the more I realized that actually there is no such thing as one culture in sport. There are many cultures that make up the larger ecosystem and so one person's experience of a culture is necessarily going to be different from another person's experience of that thing by virtue of their position in that thing, by virtue of their history, their, their attitudes, their beliefs, 
their language, lots of kinds of things that position them necessarily differently from another person. So, uh, which is another way of saying one person's piece of banter is another person's harassment. And I, I think that that's sort of what's happening here in a lot of ways is that we're finding that ideas of culture are being um, have or having to be thought about critically because one of the really big claims that it was made in the original reporting and that has been made in the reporting since then is that women's football in Australia suffers from a toxic culture, singular, monolithic, toxic culture. And that's a really, really big claim to make, particularly when you think about the fact that there are many cultures that make up football here. Some of them are bad, some of them are good, but you can't broadly generalise about all of it because as we've seen in the various responses to Devanna's allegations, including from the current senior Matildas team in their collective statement, some people have wholly positive experiences of women's football culture. And so how do you square that with something like what Devanna is saying or something that Raleigh Dobson says, you know, about this, this deep secret underground toxic culture of the game? So I think that's, that's something that we need to think about. And it's, it sort of spun me off into thinking more about the kinds of people who are responsible for creating culture, who are, who are responsible for defining what culture is and for setting certain standards of behaviour. So Football Australia are certainly one party in that. They can lead conversations. They can set policy. They can say that this or that is acceptable and unacceptable. But ultimately, because we are all part of various cultures in sport, we are all responsible for defining what that what those cultures are, what those standards of behaviour are, what the language is, how people feel in those cultures, ensuring that it's a democratic culture, that people feel like, they are equal with one another, that they feel that they can speak their minds and their beliefs and be in a, a space of safety when they do so. So I think that's sort of the next thing that we need to talk about as a sport is what do we mean when we talk about culture? Who gets to determine what it is and how is it implemented and in what ways? So I'm hoping that that's where this conversation goes as things start to settle down. I like that, Sam. I really enjoyed your piece on ABC and how you tried to untangle the idea of culture because it's it's interesting. It's a word that comes up when you join a new workplace, when you join a new sports team, uh, when you talk to coaches or you talk to players or you talk to, you know, say, whether it's a startup club or um, even like recently covering um, the AFL finals where you talk about, say, Melbourne, who are premiers, turning their culture around and talking about getting the right people in to set the culture, um, having the right values to maintain maintain the culture. It's, it is a very much, um, I guess, it's almost a, a buzzword, like a, used as a, I guess, one-size-fits-all catchphrase like this catches everyone but I much prefer your commentary around that there are many different I think I think it's an accurate one around that there are many different cultures and they all intertwine and sometimes it's complicated and they get tangled and sometimes they run parallel uh sometimes they they can work together or they can I guess butt heads like there's all these all these different things and I think that's an important distinction to make that it isn't just a a catch-all sort of sort of word and it's important to 
distinguish the I guess the different layers and the different elements that come to come to the fore I, I really it's very much just repeating what you're saying Sam but I like I like this sentiment I I think it's far more complex than simply a, a one-size-fits-all approach everyone's experience is going to be different and I think I think that's the that's the main thing one person's um, perception of a culture is never going to be exactly the same as someone else's so very much just pumping up your tires you said that I enjoyed the way you wrote about appreciate culture. it <laughs> yeah I think it I think it was an important distinction to make an important topic to to dissect and to look at more thoroughly and I think it's important an important thing to do going forward because you, you can't just say you do this and it fixes this um these are the immediate changes it's, it's it is on the responsibility of many people in leadership roles and it's going to be on people uh internally and externally to to evaluate um I guess what the meaning of culture is in this situation yeah and one of the interesting um perspectives that has emerged in the Devana story has been that of Liz Ellis, who was one of the three panellists in the Diane Smith-Gander report, which was the 2019 Review International Teams and Management um, that was sort of sparked by the the sacking of Alan Stagic. And Ellis, uh, she had some really interesting things to say about all of this, and particularly in the context of that review, because that review found that when it came to decision-making at the so the upper levels of football at least, there was too much focus on coaches and on people in positions of power and not enough focus on players. And so one of the, the larger umbrella recommendations of the review to Football Australia was to pursue what they termed a player-centric approach to the sport. And I think this uh, this situation is, and the way that FA have responded to this situation is very much in line with that recommendation. But another thing that Liz Ellis said is that sort of similar to what we're talking about is that, you know, the, the, the governing body does have a responsibility in terms of setting culture and standards, but so too do players. And, you know, when it comes to leadership groups in teams, they play a really significant role as well because it's so easy. Anyone who's ever played in a team sport knows how easy it is to fall into different kinds of cliques and groups and things like that. And so to have, a leadership team, which is uh, representational, that's diverse, that makes sure that every type of person in that team has a voice or has someone that they can trust and they respect. That's important. It's important also that those people who are chosen for those kinds of roles have some sort of leadership training because being a leader is hard, especially if you don't know how to act in certain situations. If a player comes to you with a complaint, for example, how do you respond to that? You you draw upon the things that you know in and have learned in your life. So I think ideas of leadership training and more general education about player welfare, player safety and player cultures is something else that sport can do rather than just like structural reform is obviously one really good thing, but beneath the surface of that, I think there needs to be more work done. You see it as well, Don Sam, in different sports clubs, things like um, at, this is at the professional level, looking at things like they don't necessarily have to be tests, but different types of personalities and different and how you interact with different types of personalities, right? Yeah. So a more introverted person might want someone to come over and have a quiet chat to them about something, but other people are just like, be direct, get on the phone, send me a text, you know, like. It's, yeah, exactly. And that can be drawn into, I guess, this wider um, situation when we're talking about how everyone's experiences. Are different it's it's important 
to um, you can't just have a one size fits all approach. And this is where leadership and um, you know putting the work in comes to the fore in terms of making sure that environments are welcoming places for everyone and everyone feels like they are being looked after, they are being heard, and everything is being done to ensure that they have the best possible experience and can, in terms of an athletic sense, reach their full potential and have not only an enjoyable but a successful time in these environments. Sarah, I was just laughing earlier when you, Sam, you were talking about um, setting team cultures um, because friend of the pod tom so you know talking about democratic representation i think his answer to that was to put half the team uh, in the leadership group (laughs) (laughs) which we had like literally like five team leaders but it was good it was really good and i think it also meant that um i don't know i can't really speak for the rest of the team but that there was you were connected to a leader in some way through the different sort of friendships and relationships that you might have on the team rather than for example if you just have a captain for example that captain might not be buddies with everyone on the team or, or close with everyone on the team or, or whatever it might be um and yeah I've def- I'm definitely listening listening to all this sort of with my community hat like community soccer hat on as well and I think it's really important when we're talking about who defines cultures at community level. Um, that's a really big thing and that's quite hard to sort of determine as well because you might have an understanding of your club's culture and what you stand for but then might not have necessarily that background to be able to communicate that in situations where someone might not be reflecting that in their behaviour as a coach or as a player you might be able to, I don't know, you might see it and be like, that's not what we're about, but not necessarily have the support as a volunteer at a community level to be able to, I guess, articulate or handle that situation, which that that sort of was kicked off for me yesterday. I was, I was having a look at um, federation-based frameworks for handling complaints and stuff like that, even on a micro level, to sort of put back on clubs to handle um, but I think it would be really interesting moving forward to see if there's more training available for volunteers to be able to handle those situations because it is increasingly becoming a thing, for example, to have a club welfare officer, which is fantastic, but someone like a club welfare officer does need sort of training or background in being able to handle um, things that are brought to them. Um, but, yeah, that's sort of where my tangent went, I suppose. <laughs> But yeah, we've spoken a lot about the culture and kind of whose responsibility that is. And I suppose two major components of that are FA as the governing body and then the Matildas as kind of a part of the elite level of women's football culture. We've spoken about FA's response to this and the Sports Integrity Australia partnership. And I think we will hear more about that as this kind of week goes on and more things kind of progress from that sense. But part of the whole kind of community response to this whole situation has been the response of the Matildas in amongst the media response and the community response. So we'll kind of touch on all those areas and how they've responded to this whole situation. Who would like to address? It's Pick Your Own Adventure, which... Which um, area would you like to discuss in their response, Sam? 
Yeah, I, I might start. I mean, I, I think it's it's twofold. I think the media response and the community response have been um, sort of two sides of the same coin in some ways. Uh, again, I, I, I address this in my piece for ABC where one of the more concerning parts of this story is actually the way that it's been told. Um, News Corp's language in the original report made insinuations, again, going back to this idea of culture, insinuations that many, not just me, have picked up on as having a, a, a subtext of homophobia. Um, it's used in, for example, the very loaded uh, historical language and terms such as grooming, such as predatory behaviour to describe a culture in which lesbian and queer women have been largely overrepresented compared to other spaces in the world. Women's sport more generally has been battling against these stereotypes for a very long time um, because there are these larger um, outdated, obviously, cultural assumptions that um gay women are predators and that they are coming to uh, prey on, you know, your, your young children. And I think one of the, the really good quotes was from Moya Dodd, who spoke on a, a Pride in Sport panel a couple of weeks ago. Um, and she, she, didn't, um, she wasn't asked specifically about th- this particular situation, but she was observing the discourse that was emerging off the back of it. And she said this, quote, It takes us back to a time when it was normal to be afraid of gay people, being around gay people, to sort of demonise them as predators, people who you couldn't leave your kids with. A sense of there's something improper about having partners who play on the same team, that people become gay because they're groomed. I mean, grooming has a very specific meaning, which is not the same as some kids playing sport in a team together. That word's got to be used with great care. I think there are some real concerns in the community that the reporting and especially the social media commentary that then follows from all of this, which I'm sure you can imagine, is something that takes us back to a time when fear of gay people was normalised. And we've sort of seen that occurring, not just in terms of the reporting, but also in terms of a lot of the community response. I can only speak from my own experience anecdotally that my notifications on Twitter uh, initially were, were quite awful. Um, there are a lot of um, homophobic comments in, in my own social media circles um, in response to this story. And we saw the, the sort of culmination of that only recently when uh, the PFA released a statement after the Matildas had been receiving a lot of abuse online, much of which was homophobic in nature as well and, and echoing the language that had been used in the reporting. And I think you know, sort of circling back to our discussion of culture, this is the really damaging part of this whole scenario in my eyes, is that because women's football culture is painted as a monolith, it's painted with a single brush, the homophobic undertones of the reporting casts this shadow of suspicion and doubt and discomfort across the entire sport because the, the, the insinuation is that there is this sort of underground network of 
lesbian and queer women who are predators and we don't know who they are because no one has come out and said anything or or made any specific allegations. It's just this broad sweeping insinuation. And that's almost more damaging, I think, than if someone had had, had said a name or said something more specific, because it means now that there are going to be so many people in women's sport who maybe feel more hesitant about participating than what they did before this because they I don't they have they harbor their own you know their own attitudes their own ideas about their own interpretations of all this sort of stuff and the thing that really worries me is that there's going to be a lot of queer women particularly queer teenagers in football who are going to be looking at this discourse and starting to wonder if football is a space for them anymore whether this is a space that's safe for them in the way that it has been for so many of us for such a long time. So I I think it's important that we try to separate the allegations themselves from the larger aspersions that have been cast by the reporting and to think and talk critically about the language and the context um, and the assumptions of monolithic cultures that the reporting has been making because I think that that's going to be the more damaging legacy that this moment leaves. Yeah, Sam, just to follow on from what you said about um, the social media commentary in particular and the some of it wasn't even homophobic undertones. It was just blatant homophobia, like um, but especially the stuff that the PFA has called out, which uh, especially directed towards current and former Matildas, um, included homophobic abuse, threats, uh, circulation of private images without players' consent. Like there was a lot of bad stuff that the union called out. Um, but as you mentioned, it, it casts aspersions on a whole community and a community that traditionally, I don't know if traditionally maybe isn't the right word, but at least historically has been able to feel safe or find a safe space in women's football. And for a lot of people, everyone say in their team or in their club has felt safe too um it's yeah it it's it was it's really upsetting seeing this stuff um one thing i noted was um pfa coach executive catherine gill former matilda herself um in her statement to me and then also sam in, in your story um emphasized that um Targeted abuse exacerbates harm and will also act as a barrier for people coming forward. So I think one thing that's important to remember on this when we're looking at this wider issue is if one, a certain percentage of the population identifies LGBTIQ+, a certain percentage of the football playing population also identify in this way, then as much as you don't like to think about it, there is a possibility that people who have suffered abuse or harassment or have had negative experiences in the game also identify as part of the LGBTIQ plus community. And if all they see when they log on to Twitter or hop on Instagram or read or read the news and maybe see uh, tweets quoted or whatever is homophobic abuse or um, I guess, implied language or undertones of homophobia, they're not going to feel comfortable coming forward. They're not going to want to tell their stories to media. They're not going to want to talk about it on social media. They might not even feel comfortable 
coming forward um, in terms of an investigation because if you feel like you're being demonised or being treated as part of the problem or that your sexuality might be held against you, why would you come forward? And that would be such a loss because everyone should have the right to feel safe, to feel heard, to feel respected, to feel that if something has happened to them, things are going to be uh, brought up, they're going to be brought to justice, they're going to get feel a sense of justice, they're going to be looked after, and as I said, they're going to be heard. But most of all, they should be able to feel safe, and that's safe in terms of being part of a safe, safe football culture, uh, that's in terms of what they see online. Every, everyone should be able to feel safe in sport, and I think that's a pretty common theme of what most people are saying and what we are saying on this podcast. Everyone should feel safe and comfortable in sport and in society, obviously. But if what becomes prevalent, and it, I think since the PFA have spoken out, it seems, and I know that the PFA and um, Football Australia were both looking to escalate this to various social media organisations um, and uh, I think the eSafety Commission and even potentially police, we have seen that drop off to an extent, but it was very vitriolic for a bit there and ultimately the most important thing is that people feel safe and if that's the only thing people are seeing when they're reading this stuff it's it's not helping the cause at all because at the end of the day we want to see things get better and it's not going to get better if you've got a certain percentage of the people who are invested in this sport invested in this community feeling like they're being excluded from the conversation or even worse being demonized and I think in terms of, I guess, seeing it unfold, um, there's sort of, I don't know, part of me is like, okay, so there's people that are homophobic um, that uh, act on that homophobia in ways like, you know, airing it on social media or even harassing people. But in terms of the context of this, I think it's important to note that yeah, the, the original language in the reporting validates that because it, I guess, um, yeah, like formalises it in a way as something that, you know, has been published to a wide array of people um, and sort of positions it as factual as well, which is a big part of the problem. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't have much more to act, but it, say on that. But I suppose, yeah, it's it's a, a little bit strange to think that people are just sort of waiting in the wings with these opinions, um, and then when they see an opportunity um, where they feel that these opinions or beliefs are confirmed, that they you sort of come out of the woodwork. It was another sort of half thought that I'd had, which is about the role that sport plays in terms of young women coming to terms with their sexualities as well. Like it's not just this, that this discourse can potentially affect LGBTQI plus people who have experienced abuse and harm. It's also that the discourse may make people who are in a moment of realising who they are in that way and they and coming to terms with their identity it may make them feel uncomfortable about that it may make them second guess that 
And I mean, I, I can speak from my own experience and I'm very proud to say that football played a big role in terms of me understanding who I am and coming to terms with my identity and my sexuality as well. It was an incredibly positive space for me in that respect. And when I think back to that time in my life, when I was, I was sort of, I was young, you know, I was a teenager, I was asking myself lots of questions about who I was and where I fit into things. If I had been surrounded by a, a, a community discourse that was as vitriolic as this one and that was casting so many aspersions as this one currently is, I wonder how I would think about myself. I wonder whether I would feel so safe asking another queer person in the team how they felt about this, how they felt about themselves, how they, how they knew, you know, sharing coming out stories, all that sort of stuff. I wonder whether I would have done that. I wonder whether I would have internalized some of that homophobia, whether I would have questioned my own identity by virtue of how negatively it was being framed by a story like this. So that's, I don't really have any conclusion to that, but I just wonder how that could possibly maybe be affecting people at the moment as well, who are going through those same conversations with themselves and, and whether they feel that they are now in a, in a space that's a little bit less safe and less comfortable to arrive at those understandings about who they are. Doesn't it tie into what we were saying about culture, Sam? So often yeah. when you talk about a sports club or a school or um, whatever, you know, uh, hobby people may have, like this as part of a collective or a group, a workplace, welcoming, a place being welcoming, people feeling like they can be themselves is is really important in terms of that validation. Um, if when people when you're still young and working out who you are and what that means, um, it's incredibly important to have validating uh, not only people but media um, perception around you. You only have to look at um, I guess the discourse around the marriage equality plebiscite um, where you saw certainly a sway of in, attempting to be to offer both sides some really harmful stuff making it into ad breaks on tv into ad spacing newspapers into editorials like some really harmful stuff that really hurt the lgbtiq plus community because it it was an othering thing right <laughs> and that's what um i guess a poor response to this not only has the potential to do, but I think in some instances probably has done. It's it's other people that makes them feel that they don't belong, makes them feel like they're not welcome. Or as you say, Sam, it can stop them actually figuring out who they are at all. You internalize maybe it can be self self-loathing, it can be um questioning your value, it can be even just confusion. Like <laughs> it it certainly it certainly doesn't help things, right, having this sort of discourse about. Um, and, yeah, as you say, it's not just for people who already know who they are and normally would be comfortable with what they stand for, who they love, um, what environments they're comfortable in, but it also does that to people who maybe don't know yet or are, are still trying to come to terms with or not even come to terms with trying to accept and embrace who they are and I think that's embrace is probably the word I use because that's what good good to quote what we're saying cultures do they embrace people they make them feel welcome they take them along for the ride and as we were saying before if you make a certain 
part of the community feel unwelcome in these really, really important discussions on overall, then they're, they're not going to feel a part of it. They're not going to feel safe. They're not going to feel like they can trust, um, trust, I guess, the people in positions of power or um, the processes that um, are used going forward. It's, it's, it's really important that everyone feels engaged and, as we've said all along, feel safe and included and, yeah, able to, to take these things forward. Also the way in which this has been, so that predatory element, um, sort of positions young girls in a particular way as well. Um, we can cut this if it doesn't make any sense. But basically sort of the I by creating the idea of like the lesbian predator, that actually creates the conditions where young girls might feel unsafe because they don't, they're not like they don't have any queer role models in their life or they might not know anyone who's queer, you know, if if you know what I mean. And so when people, it sort of becomes iterative and it produces environments where, yeah, young girls feel like they have to protect, protect themselves from something that doesn't necessarily exist but has been implied to them. Also, and in terms of, yeah, even if you're not um, part of the LGBTIQ community as well, sport can be an environment where, um, yeah, you you meet people from the, that community um, and I'd, not to be like meet a real life lesbian or anything like that but for young for young people often their sort of first encounters are through media through tv they might not know someone and so I think it's sort of that a space where you can sort of just wrap your head around these things and, and learn empathy and and encounter diverse people I think there's a lot of discourse about how sport can really be a space for change and I think because it's a site where a lot of different kinds of people not just along you know lines of sexuality come together where you can sort of yeah I guess encounter different perspectives and and people who've sort of had different experiences to you so I don't know I that's sort of where I'm coming from because yeah, when I was playing football as a teenager, football was the space where I first, you know, had women in my life that were queer and that were open and proud and that was a really important thing. So, and I suppose as well, so talking about like queer role models and that sort of thing, it's worth noting that a number of the our current Matildas are gay, are openly queer. Um, and I do wonder if that perhaps informed the circumstances of, of their statement that was released. So that came out last Monday uh, at the time of this recording. Um, and yeah, it, it, it was, it was an interesting moment, I think, because just from where I was sitting, I was seeing people who follow football, but perhaps aren't, um, wouldn't have been following the conversation as closely as those of us on this pod respond to it and in say it sort of felt like a very orchestrated PR move and I definitely can understand why that was the case. Um, and on the other side of that, it's also I understand why the Matildas probably felt that A, they were being called on to respond to the situation and B, they probably may have felt 
very protective because these aspersions were made about women's football um, and very much in the context of the story, which also concerned the national team environment, there was, I guess, a sort of, I don't know how to say it, but Sam, you can probably elaborate a little more, but I think just before, I, I definitely understand the sort of reaction, the gut reaction that it felt like they were they were closing around Ivana and how that could also be interpreted as things not being taken seriously. Um, and I do worry how that may have affected some people in the sense that they may have felt like their favourite players or, or this team that is so beloved wasn't taking um, these allocation, allegations seriously. Um, but, yeah, the statement was in, in a context is basically what I'm saying, and I, I wonder if the homophobia informed the circumstances there. Yeah, I think it did, Angela. And you sort of, I think you, you said it quite well there in that the statement can sort of be separated into two different parts as well. The first part is that they do acknowledge and show empathy towards Devanna's specific allegations. And they say they welcome, they, you know, they do the principle of believe women. They welcome an investigation. They take it seriously. They hope she has the support around her that's necessary. But the second part and what you've talked about here, Angela, is the the tone that was a little bit more defensive which is in response to the larger insinuations of this toxic culture that was made in the reporting because that those insinuations were made about them they were being framed as part of this toxic culture and i think I can only speak for myself, but if I was being accused of that in those kinds of subtextual ways, I would want to defend myself too. If I was experiencing a high performance environment that I believed was wholly positive, I would want to defend that too. So like, I understand as well why it may have seemed on the outside, like an orchestrated response perhaps because it was an orchestrated response. It was a response from a team defending their environment, defending themselves from the slings and arrows that this accusation of a toxic culture was throwing their way. So I, I, you can sort of see both sides to it. And I, you're right, Angela, I think the, the, the context of the homophobia in the language and in the community more generally, I, I think it did... Um, form part of the reason why they made the statement that they did and also the way in which that statement was received because that was when the the homophobic abuse towards the Matildas really started to ramp up was after that statement was released um, and the, the individual statements that they all made and, and the social media sort of um, approach that they made as well in the sense of turning off comments and things like that. Um, and there, there were some who I suppose read that as uh, Football Australia closing ranks and um, sort of, I mean, uh, conspiracy theories about the governing body telling the Matildas what to do and how to act and what to say and all that sort of stuff. But like it didn't, that wasn't a statement that read like it was dictated to them by someone from up above. It read as a statement from a group of women who are defending themselves against some really serious allegations that have not been substantiated in any way. 
and it's a it's a, a statement from a group of women who know that they're role models as you mentioned Angela they know that they have standing in this community that they have responsibility in this community and you know they're not they're not poets they're not lawyers they're footballers and so I think they did the best that they could to navigate the the nuances of this moment um and to treat the two separate situations in this story the Devana allegations and the culture allegations with the the right amount of balance I think you can probably rule it out on being a pure PR thing based on the fact of if you're doing, I think if you're doing a PR response, you certainly wouldn't after, I think, ticking the important boxes in terms of acknowledging Lisa Devanna's um, allegations and experiences and welcoming an inquiry to then, I guess, go into bat for your own culture and talk about pretty much how great your own experiences have been. If you want to talk here, a discussion of what different cultures and how everyone interprets culture, just go back to the start of this podcast. Um, I think like it's clearly a, a group of players who, and there's some very, very intelligent players um, in the Matildas um, who clearly, as you say, Sam and Angela as well, wanted to defend themselves, wanted to stand up for themselves, acknowledge what happened, but wanted to, I guess, for want of a better phrase, get on the, on the front foot. But at the same time, you can understand why people didn't, read it that way because the I think the coordinated social media drop was the thing that got a lot of people offside the red love hearts on everyone's posts as they posted the same thing like it was almost like in sync and they pretty much happened like if you follow the Matildas on Instagram you just was like bang 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 and all the same comments one after the other so you you can't blame people for being skeptical and I mean, I think for some people it would have been a feeling of, you know, when you say if someone says blah, 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 and then they say, but you can't believe everything they say before that. That is the impression I think I got from some people's reactions to this. They say that you're saying this and you're saying this, and then you're going in to defend everything. Um, And it was, we just discussed, you can understand why they did that. But you can also see why plenty of people saw it as closing ranks, as saying, no, wasn't us, not didn't happen in our environment. We've had a great experience. And I think for some it um the reaction has been understandably. And as I said, as we talked about the start of this podcast, yeah, your experience has been great, but clearly it hasn't always been great for someone else. And it hasn't always been great for everyone. And I think that's where um people really did get I guess, worked up about it or upset by it. And I think that's a totally legitimate feeling to have as well. Like you can understand why the players wanted to not just speak out, but speak out collectively and stand out for themselves. You can understand that. They want to um, back in their culture. They want to back in each other and ultimately themselves. Um, but you can understand why people weren't weren't happy with it. And it's a diff- I think it's a difficult... Um, it's a, difficult, it's a difficult balance to strike if you're going to put out that sort of statement. And I, was, I wasn't surprised by the, um, I guess, contrasting responses to it all. But as you said, Sam, the, the homophobia and clearly the abuse towards players kicked into overdrive after that, which just isn't acceptable. Um, I think that was probably the most disappointing part was <laughs> that people jumped on it as a chance to, I guess, go at individual players or to 
about them as a collective. And that was, as we mentioned before, really, uh, really disappointing. Um, I think it's important to note as well that, you know, we are going to hear some of the Matildas. We've already heard from Tony Gustafson and um, James Johnson, obviously, talk to um, these things in person and individually. I think we'll hear more of that. As obviously, as we're recording, you know, we know the Matildas have landed in Sydney for the upcoming friendly. So we're, I think we're going to hear more and more. But yeah, it was it was certainly a mixed response to that statement. Uh, I think another com- a, a confusing aspect for me as well was the fact that the statement went up on Football Australia's website. So it sort of was like, oh, so are they facilitating the Matildas getting their message out there or are they sort of behind the scenes um, putting it all together? That was a, a part of it as well that I sort of, I think, contributed to sort of the confusion and, and the mixed responses as well. You compare it to, say, the NWSL where a lot's been done through the players' union, for example, like all players just collectively doing this. You're not having – I think that's I think that's a really important point, Angela, that, you know, if the FA is part of the subject of this, you know, investigation, this story, that to a lot of people it struck the wrong chord, that it came – that they were the ones that – for want of a better word, published the statement and put it all together with graphics and that sort of thing. Yeah. But, I yeah, I don't know. I I don't know if this is entirely relevant, but just thinking back to the Olympics with the um, Aboriginal flag being held before the Games, just sort of the context of that, that was, I think, pointed to a dynamic perhaps where, Football, this doesn't have to go in, but like Football Australia are happy to stand with the Matildas in what they wanted to communicate as a group. Um, so, again, I, it, it's difficult because I suppose you don't want the Matildas to then also be sitting in opposition with Football Australia. Anyway, but regardless, I think the important thing is that there's going to be that independent process so that anyone who perhaps has experienced things differently has or experienced bad things can go through that. I don't know if that's, again, that needs to be included. Um, I had another thought. I think it's gone. I don't think it was a very good thought. So I suppose we've covered a lot, but any sort of final thoughts to wrap up this conversation for now well I suppose just looking forward to what's to come in the the short and the medium and perhaps even the long term um later this week Football Australia are expected to announce the uh I guess the the parameters or the details of the Sport Integrity Australia investigation um it's been sort of reported in media that it's going to extend beyond the specific um, allegations made by Devanna and have a look at the sport a little bit more broadly, including men's football. Um, and, you know, the Sport Integrity Australia are also quite a new uh, institution. So it'll be interesting to see how um, they deal with this and the kind of uptake that they have from any other people who want to step forward and, and speak about their own experiences as well. Um, as Harry mentioned, we've got the Matildas back on home soil for the first time in, I think, two years. 
which is exciting, but they fly into Sydney uh, in a bit of a cyclone. Um, no doubt they'll be asked lots of questions while they're here uh, about this story. And, you know, we'll, I guess we'll see what the community response is to the various kinds of ways that they do or do not respond. And, you know, they, they don't have to respond in any particular way. They don't have to respond at all if they choose not to. They're here as athletes. They're here to play these two friendlies against Brazil. And I think it, it's important maybe for anyone in the media who's listening here that, you know, the, the Matildas don't owe you a comment in this situation. They're here to be athletes. They're here to do their jobs. Um, and I think it's important to make sure that we meet them where they're at as well and to not push them because they're going through a lot as well. They're, they're you know, they're part of a community that has just had some pretty extraordinary accusations made about them. They're probably going through a lot emotionally in terms of that, but also in terms of being stuck in a bubble in Sydney where they're not allowed to see their families or their friends after sometimes years, you know, and in a moment, especially like this, when probably all you want is a hug from your family, you know. Um, but I guess thinking long-term as well, this is this is just the beginning of a kind of transformation that I think football is going to be going through. So, recommending all cases be referred to Sport Integrity Australia is a great first step. But I think the larger conversation, the longer conversation that we need to be having is going back again to this idea of cultures. How do we create sporting cultures in which these kinds of things don't actually happen in the first place, in which Elisa Devanna does not feel the need to have to go to the media because something she experienced was not able to be remedied in the way that she wanted internally. How do we create cultures in which people feel safe and welcome, even though they experience those cultures differently from different perspectives, that they still feel valued and they still feel like they belong? I think that's a larger thing that we're going to have to address over the however long it takes, I suppose. Just to follow on, Sam, it's so important to address all these things with nuance and with care going forward as well. And that's for us in the media, for those in these positions of power for those making these decisions. I think the one thing you take from these couple of weeks is how important nuances and taking care in terms of the conversations we have, in terms of the steps that are taken, in terms of the narrative, in terms of media commentary, and in terms of taking important steps going forward. Like it's got to be done with nuance, it's got to be done with care, and it's got to, as you say, Sam, make sure everyone feels that they belong and that they're safe and they're going to be listened to, and they're going to be cared for. I think that's what we all really want to see, not just in sport and our sport, but in society generally. I guess I don't I don't really have anything else to touch on, but um, I suppose as well it's okay to, like, log off and to, like, give yourself time to process these things um, because this can bring up stuff. Um, and I'm sure um, Marissa will have popped in some some contact contacts for to reach out to if any of this stuff is sort of putting you a bit off kilter or if you need, you just need someone to have a chat to um, to sort of process anything. But yeah, I guess that's the main thing. It, it, these moments can be really emotionally affecting, um, even as just like fans of the game or or as people sort of reporting on the on what's going on so yeah just wanted to to touch on that 
And sorry that we've been absent, but yeah, we've been we've been doing that, <laughs> making sure that we're handling handling this as best as we can and yeah, doing like it with we've, care. We've been affected by it too, you know. Like, let's not make any, you know, excuses for that. Like, we it's been difficult for us being so deeply embedded in this game to witness all this and to 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 observe some of the awful comments that have come off the back of it and to try and figure out how to address this story again with that nuance, with the delicacy, with the context, with the history, with the language that we, well, that I at least feel like the story was not given originally. So it did take his time to, to figure out how to navigate all these different bits and pieces and, it's hard, you know, it, it brings up a lot personally, it brings up a lot politically, culturally. Um, so, yeah, apologies for dropping off the radar a little bit, listeners, but we wanted to make sure that we brought you something that was uh, informed, something that we had discussed at length, something that we had revised and thought about um, because this is a serious story and it deserves a serious response. And that's why we didn't have other pods coming out as well because we couldn't just be carrying on with little pods about FAWSL and Champions League and hit this, that and everything else um, while we had this in the works and wanted to really do it justice and also do other feats and parts and stories of, of Australian women's football justice um, when we get back to regular programming, which isn't, too far away, um, especially with the Matildas coming to town. So, yeah, that was really important to us, as you say, Sam and Angela. It was assessing it with nuance. It was taking our time, taking a considered approach and doing this right. As we said at the top of this pod, if anything in these last few weeks has brought up something for you or affected you in any kind of way and you need support, there is help available. You can contact Lifeline, Beyond Blue, Q Life, which is a an, organiza- an organization dedicated to helping uh, LGBTQI plus people, one eight hundred respect. Um, the Blue Knot Foundation, which one of our Twitter followers, Rarely Right, alerted us to, that's a, an organization dedicated to adults who experienced abuse as a child. So we've got the Blue Knot Foundation as well. Um, their links and phone numbers will be in the episode description, and we've tweeted it previously, but we'll give it a reshare on Twitter and on all our social media so that it's as accessible um, to you all as possible. Uh, For any PFA members listening, there is support available that you can access through the PFA, including reporting mechanisms. So we'll share that link too. And just finally, to echo the girls, we really appreciate your patience with this. We'll have some pods out with, you know, the Matildas games um, coming up against Brazil. But for now, thanks for tuning in.